welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Hi, everyone. I am going to be sharing an excerpt from one of the Paradigm Shift Program modules that the participants chose, which was about co-parenting, communication, and marriage dynamics as impacted by raising a PDA child or teen. So in this episode, I first share my story and weave into it elements of how my marriage has been impacted in different ways. And then I talk about one, just one of the eight things we spoke about in the, in the program, but the first element of why it's so difficult to co-parent. And that is that often the lead parent has a very different experience than the non-lead parent because they are the ones that are hypervigilant and providing their nervous system as scaffolding to their PDA child, which is very difficult to understand from the outside looking in. So this is just a piece of the of the session we did together, but I hope that it is helpful for you. Perhaps you could listen to it with your partner or co-parent to help you guys get on the same page. All right, hope you enjoy. Co-parenting, whether you're in the same home or not, is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And it's going to bring up things in your relationship. I often think about like this, like everyone around me is living a more surface life than I am living with my partner. Because we've had to go to the depths of knowing each other and knowing ourselves and our trauma cave in a way that like, I don't think many families would have survived. And I think many of you may be in this process so it's you know it's completely transformed everything about how we thought our marriage would be and it's been hard since the very beginning because my husband and i he's always worked in government or journalism and he was living on the border and from the moment my son was born it has been in the trenches i almost did not finish my phd I was in an outpatient maternal mental health program for a year and a half at Georgetown and had a lot of health issues um, because my son did not sleep. I had a traumatic birth. He lost oxygen. I did like from that moment, it started as like trauma, right? And it would be like I would sort of get my footing right? Like I finished my dissertation. When I finished my dissertation, I actually spent a month sleeping. And I know that sounds exaggerated, (laughs) but I actually would like send my young, my son to daycare. I'd get up in the morning and then I'd go back to sleep from 9am until one. And then I would do like a gentle yoga and like, just sort of like look, be outside for a little bit. And then my son would come home and I would go to bed at like eight or nine. And I did this for a month super burned out. That was my first burnout experience. 
I also had all these health issues in DC with like joint pain and fatigue and I lost all this weight and I had terrible night sweats um, to the point where my husband and I couldn't sleep in the same room. So we also could not sleep in the same room for about three years. I'm just giving you all the details to show you that like, (laughs) I get it. I've been there. I'm still in it. Um, But just to give you details also about how it's affected my life before I speak more generally. Um, So I couldn't sleep in the same bed with my husband because of the drop, like how dramatic the night sweats were. And this happened as soon as I stopped breastfeeding to the point where like, I was being tested for like thyroid and endocrine problems and rheumatoid arthritis and tuberculosis and breast cancer and all these things. Nobody could figure it out. Turns out (laughs) it's related to nervous system burnout and trauma, but like nobody thought of that at the time. Um, But I couldn't sleep in the same bed as my husband because I would, as gross as it sounds, I would have to have a pile of sheets and a pile of wicking pajamas. And I would every two hours wake up and have to change. And this went on. It still happens to me around my period when hormones are happening. Um, but but not to the point where we have to sleep separately. But then I would I was so triggered by my son waking in the night because he would wake up screaming. And I know you guys understand that where it's not like, Mama, like I need a glass of water. It's like you're either asleep or you're panicking. So it was like I'd wake up to my son's nervous system activation. So I actually slept for two years in a different floor of the home because I was too triggered by hearing my son um, activated in the middle of the night. And, and like, I still have issues with this. Like when my older son, my younger son went through nosebleeds where he would wake up and bleed. I, um, I would pass out because my vagus nerve would like go into freeze and I would like hit my head many times. So like my nervous system has been very impacted by this as has my marriage right? Because I was diagnosed with severe postpartum depression, anxiety, and OCD. It was, I was suicidal. I could not give much to the relationship. And, you know, this is the beginning of our relationship, right? Like we go traipsing around Columbia. We've met in an international affairs program, and then we're like in Traumaville. And then I got a job at the Pew Charitable Trust and like things sort of stabilized and I just, we decided to have another kid, which looking back, I'm like, wow, that was ballsy (laughs) because of how much we had been through, but things felt stable. And I was actually the higher breadwinner of the two. I was working in downtown DC. It was a very high level job. My husband was working in the town in Maryland that we lived. Um, and was probably more of the lead parent because he, if my son had something happen, he would pick him up and stuff. And I'm outlining this because like we dramatically also shifted our gender dynamics and who was the lead parent after I left my career. After my son, my second son was born, that's when my Cooper, my PDA son, went into nervous system burnout and I left my career. Spent a year trying to get him out of it, but I didn't understand nervous system burnout and I didn't know about PDA. So I was working through the sensory processing lens, enter the pandemic. So I've become, I left my career as an academic and 
my husband got a job in Michigan to take us home to to my family and where we could afford not to have both of us work. And then I was caregiving for a year. And then it was a year after that, that I learned about PDA. And I was like for probably four months, all up until this point, we had screen time limits. I was, I had laminated schedules with like little caterpillars trying to move my kids. Like they would sign in to my homeschooling for the pandemic. <laughs> I would make them go outside at 930 in the morning because even if it was snowing, I was like, they have to get outside. So you can imagine the PDA child's experience through this. And it was just escalating. Yes, of course. I hope this is helpful. It's going to tie into everything we talk about. Um, and I remember, I'm just going to be so honest. I remember hearing Harry Thompson's interview on Tilt, the Tilt Parenting podcast with Debbie Reber. I don't know if you guys have listened to that one. Um, and I know, you know, Harry's problematic, but as an academic and someone who doesn't love cancel culture, I think we can name things we've learned and moments in time without you know, promoting someone's work. And when I listened to his interview, he was responding to Debbie Reber as like, I don't want to answer your questions, right? He's like rejecting the questions that parents were asking. And it was the first time I realized like, oh, this is so much more than demand avoidance of transitions. It's, it's everything like, and he was talking about how he resists his book. And it was like, I had this light bulb moment of like, this is not going away. And then I read the Understanding PDA book, which was super triggering. I don't know if you guys have read that as well. Feel free to drop in the chat. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's not hopeful at all. <laughs> because they're like, here's a survey of people we followed and all of them have like these severe behavioral issues and are in the institutions. And, and this is part of also why I've done the work that I've done, because I'm like, this can't be the story. Like this can't be, this isn't the only information, right? We have to be hopeful about it and have faith in our children. I remember that same summer sitting at the table across from my husband my best friend in the world who I love dearly, who like, I feel like I've met, I'm meant to be with and telling him in all seriousness, I think we should get divorced because then each of us could find another stable, able-bodied adult who's not emotionally traumatized to help us raise these kids. And that would probably be better for both of us because we don't ever interact anyways, because we can't talk to each other. If we're in the same room, one of us is de-escalating if you know we're like ships in the night and it's robbing peter to pay paul because if you give me an hour i come back and you're demolished right and it was just like this is not life i'm so effing depressed i mean i was yeah real talk this was i think i put this in one of my pda parent podcasts with katie too so it's like recorded for posterity <laughs> my i did all the editing so my husband was like are you really gonna put that out there and i was like people are gonna understand <laughs> um and it was a dark time it was a very very dark time and he was very upset with me 
for broaching that subject, but that's how dark it was for us. And that was also the moment before I was like, screw it. Like I'm putting this kid on a screen. It's not worth it. And I started to think through like a more cost benefit lens and started to look for external support. What I just described or some version of it, you know, the trauma, the mental health struggles, whether or not you're neurodivergent, I don't know what flavor of neurodivergent I am. I'm a very highly anxious person, which you can probably tell from like that story. And I have suffered nervous system burnout before physically. Um, but that's very common. Like, it's actually not as uncommon as you'd think. Like when, when I look at the patterns of, of especially lead parents who are usually moms who I've worked with, they have some of these threads running through and they do get through them and beyond those like dark moments. Okay. The second component, which is always the case, and I don't like to generalize by gender, but I'm going to have to because I, I have yet to meet a family. I have one family that I've ever coached where the dad was the primary. Okay. And, you know, it can also be two moms, two dads, whatever. So I'll say the lead parent usually gets on board much faster than the non-lead parent. And there's a reason for this because you feel in your body the direct trade-off of setting a limit, a boundary, or withdrawing undivided attention. And until someone feels that, they are not going to understand it. And this is why it's so hard to the counterfactual is something you can't see, right? Which means what happens if you don't do X? And so much of our lives as lead parents and caregivers are silent and very subtle nervous system scaffolding and hypervigilance to what might happen if X, Y, or Z plays out prevent and doing that to prevent that activation. So for one activation, one panic attack that like a therapist or a non-lead parent or a teacher sees, there's nine other ones that you've prevented because you're constantly hypervigilant with your nervous system to things that are as small as like, how fast am I turning the car? Can I listen to something on the radio? They're putting their window down, but we're about to go on the highway. Is it worth it to put it back up? Because the noise is going to bother them, but they think they want it down, right? Like this is effing exhausting. And all of it's happening inside your body and your brain and nobody can see that, right? And so if you're not the lead parent, it's very hard to fully understand what your experience is because your executive functioning is tapped out, right? Like I remember when I was in that burnout phase, like my husband got me flowers and I was like, I can't, like I can't think about cutting off the stems and putting it into a thing and putting the little like <laughs> grow thing. Like it was like one more thing was gonna tip me over into like, I cannot manage my life. Like I would look around and be like, I, I can't do anything else than this. And of course, I can articulate this to you now because I've been working to do so for three years. But even more than that, before that, I had a, a secret blog on sensory processing disorder, which is like all the writings let me know, like, this isn't SPD, it's something more. But this is very, very hard to articulate. 
And so sometimes in order for a co-parent to understand, they have to have experience going through it. And what this means is as parents that are lead parents, we sometimes have to reflect on when we are we have to reflect on like, yes, we need to give our child what they need. And sometimes that's your nervous system. But also, are we not giving our partner the opportunity to actually feel the discomfort and the uncertainty and the nervous system activation of learning how to do this by stepping in, handling the meltdown, not having them do one on one time? And that's only like, that's just a request, a question to reflect on, because when I do work more intimately with couples, like sometimes that dynamic, and this is not to put blame on anyone, it's just to notice like, the mom really needs a break, right? But the dad and her are saying, but my son only wants her or she is the only one who knows how to deescalate. But think about how you learn that it's from doing it and not knowing right and feeling it and so sometimes i'll say to the couple like let's make a plan where like mom you're going to take a step back and dad's going to go into the discomfort and uncertainty of figuring it out and like yes the child's going to escalate more with dad but that's okay because there's only one way for them to actually learn it. And so that's something like as you move forward to think about just because it isn't sustainable for one parent to only do. I mean, sometimes I have single parent families and they do, you know, a heroic job of this, but to the degree we can mitigate hospitalization and, you know, severe mental health stuff which comes from just giving yourself over the better and so we need to push our edge a little bit on that particular point yeah people see the behavior but they also don't see a lot right because think of all the times when like your child actually does quite well because you're with your child signaling safety or like for my son's very first autism eval which was a clinical psych i had to take away the scaffolding of like, no, I'm not going to like preempt you not being able to figure out how to put those two pieces of um, toy together. I'm going to let you try and do it yourself. But like the pediatrician could not see me thinking that he just saw the counterfactual, which is what happens when you take away the scaffolding that has become intuitive for many of you. That's not to say we want to traumatize our kids by taking away the scaffolding. It's just we need to name that because so often external to your experience, people are looking for indicators like a meltdown or a rude thing that they said. But that might only happen one out of 10 times because of the work you're doing. Moving out of hypervigilance is a long process, right? And we want to be compassionate with ourselves. I, it's really been only in the last year that I've fully moved out of that. And now that my son's eight and is doing so much better, dad is more the safest of the safe nervous system. But the first seven plus years were just me, right? But 
I'll share an anecdote to illustrate this second point of like, sometimes we need the other parent to go through stuff. Um, when my son started Montessori, he, within two days of going, we signed the paperwork for a private school <laughs> and, and we're like, we're going to pay for the whole year. Two days in, he broke two ribs and a collarbone because he was so like manic and excited, right? He wasn't even dysregulated. He was just sensory seeking and crashed into bleachers. And I was like, oh God. So what happened, you know, when, when PDA children feel pain, it can be very intense, right? And they have fear around it. And we're gonna talk about that in the anxiety OCD stuff. Um, and so he would get paralyzed where like he would need to pee or he'd need to get up or change his clothes, but he would like fight whoever tried to help him and scream. And this was happening at night. One of my main triggers is being woken to screaming because it was so deeply ingrained with my motherhood experience and part of what I had to like work through for a year and a half in mental health stuff. So I said to my husband, I was like, I cannot do this. Like, I can't do it. I, I cannot. I cannot like move him through this. It's too activating for my nervous system. And he's like, okay, I'm on it. And I feel like he was on it for me more than my son. But what he did was nothing different than I would have done. He just sat through the discomfort and the activation of like my son hitting him and screaming in his face. And like my, my husband just stayed calm through it, but it was like, he knew he had to do it for my stability. And in doing so, it totally shifted their relationship because my son felt this additional layer of safety with my husband because he sat through the activation. And that's when things started to shift towards like dad could do more. Um, dad could actually do more of the body, the double like body doubling for a nervous system. And it was like also a light bulb moment for me. And it ties into some of the mindset shifts that are in your portal of like activation and screaming and hitting and name calling is not actually a reflection of the relationship or degree of safety that person feels. It doesn't make it any easier. It's, it's actually like unrelated and sitting with it and being with it and allowing for that is actually like creating this like whole other level of trust on the other side. But that process with a child, I think, can shift the level of trust as uncomfortable as it is. So we do need to give the non-lead parent opportunities. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.